All right, Mickey here with an advert for BetterHelp Therapy Online. You all right? Such a small question and sometimes such a big question too, eh? Now, regular listeners will know I am no stranger to depression and while over time and with the help of some decent counselling and brilliant friends and family, I've established a toolkit to help when the constantly dripping tap of life gets a bit too much. That does not mean I am a stress-free human rainbow skipping through meadows. I mean, who is? We all carry around different stresses, big and small, and sometimes we can deal, and sometimes it's much harder to cope. Life, innit? Right now, I have a teenage puppy to deal with, and although I love her very, very much, she can be a lot. There, said it. And as quick a fix as it seems to say, I'm fine, I'm fine, and push it all down into the big inside box and put that lid on. For me, that hasn't been a great long-term solution in that if I don't get it off my chest, it will at some point come bubbling up and it's never been one to pick its moments in a good way. I find talking means I can avoid it exploding out of me like a messy emotional volcano all over my nana's carpet. Also, during my various times in talk therapy, I discovered that saying something out loud or writing it down can make it seem much more manageable than allowing it to swirl around and grow ever bigger in my head. If you're thinking of starting therapy, Give BetterHelp a try. I've found knowing how to reach out is sometimes the toughest bit, but BetterHelp is entirely online. Boom. Which means it couldn't be easier. You just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a registered therapist, then work your sessions around your schedule. With more than a thousand therapists in the UK already, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Standard issue listeners get 10% off their first month at betterhelp.com slash standard. That's betterhelp.com slash standard. Standard issue for all women. Hello, Hannah here and welcome to this week's Sunday Chops. I'm very pleased with this one and I know that at least one of you will be too. A few months ago, one of our Patreon subscribers suggested we chat to someone about Lady Margaret Beaufort and in truth, I've been looking for an excuse to do just that for ages. So here we are. Margaret was born on the 31st of May, 1443, which means this week she'd be having a birthday and that excuse is good enough for me. If you don't know who Margaret was, she was a major player in the War of the Roses and the mother of Henry VII, making her the matriarch of the Tudor dynasty. There is an excellent book about her by author, historian and podcaster Nicola Tallis called Uncrowned Queen, The Fateful Life of Margaret Beaufort, Tudor Matriarch. And I was lucky enough to get Nicola on the Zoom to chat about Margaret's life, her legacy and why many people believe she's the greatest monarch we never had. Hope you enjoy it, especially if you asked for it. And on that note, if you want to help support us, get early and ad-free access to our podcasts and suggest people or topics that you think would make interesting podcasts for Standard Issue, you know what to do. But just in case you don't, it's go to our Patreon page. There will be a link in this week's show notes and sign up for whatever amount you can afford. Thanks. 
Hello, Nicola. Thank you ever so much for joining us. Oh, pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. I'm very excited. I've been looking for an excuse to talk about Lady Margaret Beaufort for absolutely ages. So now we have one. Born in May 1443. So here we are at her... I did work the maths out the other day and I've probably forgotten it again. 580th birthday, would it be? Yeah, I think that sounds right. That sounds right. Yeah. I don't know if people celebrate 580th birthdays, but well, I suppose if you got that far, it would be a massive celebration. Yeah, they definitely should. (laughs) (laughs) Probably the best place to start then is, could you tell us a little bit about Margaret's early life? Yeah, of course. So Margaret was, as, as you mentioned, she was born in May, on the 31st of May, 1443 at Bletso Castle in Bedfordshire. And she was the only child born to John Beaufort, Duke of Somerset, by his wife, Margaret Beecham. So she was a very, very important, high status child, but to everybody else in the country at the time of her birth, she wasn't particularly important because of her gender. Boy was always preferable to a girl at that time, but she was a member of the royal family because she was related by blood to Henry VI, who had been ruling England since he was a baby in the 1420s. And for that reason... England was a very, very unstable place at the time of Margaret's birth. So England's just on the brink of the Wars of the Roses because, or, you know, partially because Henry VI was a very, very weak king. You know, we know that he suffered from some form of mental health problems. Um, Schizophrenia has been suggested. So um, the country had been ruled by a regent on Henry's behalf during his youth. But even when he reached 16, the age at which he was deemed capable to rule, he was not particularly strong, shall we say, in the same form that his father, Henry V, Victor of Agincourt, had been. So England isn't particularly being ruled by anybody um, of the same strong sort of character with strong leadership qualities. And for this reason, it was a country that was very much full of, of factions, mm. people vying for power. And yeah, um, and so this is the world that Margaret Beaufort is born into. And of course, his grandfather, Henry Bolingbroke, had taken yes. the throne himself. So he had. It, it, generationally, they were a bit unstable. Absolutely. So yeah, Henry Bolingbroke had usurped the throne from Richard II. And, um, you know, Richard died a a few months later, probably starved to death. And yeah, so the Lancastrian dynasty, as they came to be known, were very unsettled on the throne, so to speak. Margaret herself was directly related to Henry IV, because, you know, Henry IV was Um, the son of John of Gaunt as a result of his first marriage, whereas Margaret was a great-granddaughter of John of Gaunt, but as a result of his third marriage to his former mistress, Catherine Swinford. So there was a a direct link there. And, you know, that in its own right had caused a great amount of scandal um, and would do for the rest of Margaret's life, actually, because the Beauforts were always... Um, seen as the illegitimate line they mm. were always considered to be very much you know illegitimate because they were the children were born out of wedlock and yeah that caused all sorts of problems later on there is some suggestion that margaret's father who died when she was a baby yeah took his own life 
Yes. What do you make of that claim? Yeah, I think that that probably actually is the case. Um, So, yes, taking one's own life in the medieval period was considered to be a mortal sin. But there is one contemporary chronicler who was in a good position to know the truth of the matter, who states that because... Margaret's father was in a state of disgrace at the time of his death. So he had been put in charge of leading this military campaign in France. It had been a dismal failure and he'd been banished from court by Henry VI. And so it is said that because of that, he did resort to taking his own life. Now, no other contemporary source comments on this, but actually they don't say anything about his death. And I think that that's probably quite indicative in its own right, the fact Mm. that it's sort of very hush hush um so i think that yeah there probably is some truth in that and that's probably how he did meet his end just a few days before margaret's first birthday that is not the best start for her is it that said it's not the defining event of her life that i would say happened when she was 13 now by this point she's on her second marriage her first marriage i put in quotes a little bit because it it was she was very young and it was annulled yes that's right Yeah, But her second marriage, she's 13, she's already a widow, and she gives birth in a drafty old castle to the child that would be the future Henry VII. Yes. It's easy to assume, with a modern perspective, that she was lucky to survive this at her age. For that said, I don't know a lot about childbirth in in those times. How miraculous was that, that, that they both survived that birth? Well, it was. It was even in Margaret's own lifetime, it was seen as miraculous because, um, I mean, first of all, yes, as you said, Margaret was 13 when she gave birth to this child, but she was actually 12 at the time that she married. And and then, yes, she's 13 when she gives birth. And we know that at this time she was was very, very slight physically. She was um, underdeveloped. And um, her friend and confessor in in later life, Bishop Fisher later says that it seemed a miracle that of that age and of so little a personage, anyone should have been born at all. So yeah, it's an extremely traumatic experience for Margaret childbirth and and because of, you know, just the physical implications Mm. alone. So the fact that she survives and her child survives is seen as something of a miracle. Um, But it certainly... We don't know what the physical long-term implications of childbirth were for Margaret, but we know that certainly it made its mark on her psychologically. And, you know, that reappears later on in her life when her son arranges for her granddaughter and namesake, Margaret, to go to Scotland to marry James IV. And she urges her son not to allow his daughter to go too early in case in his haste to consummate the union, the King of Scots might injure her and endanger her health. And she's very much speaking from her own personal experience when she says this. She didn't have any more children. Again, it's easy to assume that either the trauma of it put her off sex for life, or that she was unable because of the damage done. Do we know any more specifics than that? No, we don't really. So it has often been said that, you know, that the 
trauma caused to Margaret's body rendered her physically incapable of having any children. Now, that could be true. I would also suggest, though, that, yeah, there possibly was a conscious decision on Margaret's behalf not to become pregnant again, because we know that, you know, she marries twice more. And as you said, she never had any more children. And we don't know of any further pregnancies that she experienced either. But I think that also she was quite clever when it came to choosing her husbands in terms of the fact that her third husband, he is a second son. So there isn't really any pressure on him to continue with um, his family line and his dynasty. And then with her fourth husband, he, like Margaret, has also been widowed and has sons and children from previous marriage. So again, there isn't really any desperate need for him to produce further children. So I would say Margaret was very, very pragmatic and very, very practical throughout her life. And, you know, as I say, we don't know if she did suffer physical complications after her child's birth, but I certainly think that there was perhaps an element of choice in Mm. no further children too. And of course, at a time when it was perfectly acceptable to have a mistress. Yeah. She didn't really need to fulfil that function as such. Now, again, I can sit and think that that this incident, you know, this terrible birth would, would involve, you know, the mother and the child being like bonded together. But in truth, Margaret and Henry were separated for the vast majority of his childhood for one reason or another. Can you tell us why? Yeah, of course. So I mentioned earlier that at the time of Margaret's birth, um, England was on the brink of the Wars of the Roses. Well, by the time of Henry's birth, so Margaret's son, when he's born in 1457, that war has begun. And um, England's thrown into a state of turmoil and uncertainty. And Margaret is very much at the heart of this. So soon after the birth of her son, Henry, she remarries. Um, She marries the son of the Duke of Buckingham, Henry Stafford. And um, soon after that, Henry VI is deposed. And in his place, Edward IV establishes himself as king following you know, a victory at Mortimer's Cross and then a very bloody victory at the Battle of Towton. And this really puts Margaret's family into a very precarious situation. So soon after, Henry Tudor, Margaret's son, becomes the ward of Edward IV's supporter, William Herbert, and goes to live with his family at Raglan Castle in South Wales. So Margaret is separated from her son. She'd probably been separated from him before this, after her marriage to Henry Stafford, but she's certainly separated from him now. We know that she was able to retain contact with Henry, so she was able to go and visit him at Raglan. We know she did that at least once. But then again, after, so there's a continuing tussle for the throne um, after the Battle of Tewkesbury in 1471, which sees Edward IV effectively permanently crush the Lancastrians. Henry Tudor flees into exile abroad and there he remains until 1485. So there's this period from 1471 to 1485, where Margaret doesn't see her son at all. Um, So they're completely separated from one another. And, you know, because of the times in which they were living, really, she had been separated from him for a long time prior to this, too. That's awful, isn't it? 
Yeah, so sad, really sad. However, what sustained her throughout all of this was her faith, and I use that in sort of two ways, her her religious faith, and also this sort of overriding belief that she had in the cause, the Lancaster cause, and that her son would eventually come back and be the Lancaster king. Yes. Are those two faiths essentially one and the same? No, I don't think so, actually. I think that nobody, including Margaret, even considers Henry as a contender for the throne until the unexpected events of 1483, which see Edward IV die completely unexpectedly. Um, So until then, Margaret had always been campaigning for her son's return home from exile, but she'd basically been begging Edward IV to pardon Henry and to allow him to come home and live his life in freedom and safety. It looks like on the face of it, she was going to come close to achieving that because Edward IV drafts a pardon for Henry Tudor. But then it's almost like an episode of EastEnders, I always think. It's like <laughs> you get the Edward IV drafts a pardon, but then he dies. Dun, dun, dun. And, uh, <laughs> no one knows what's going to happen next. Eventually, of course, within a matter of weeks... Edward IV's son, you know, Edward V, the eldest of what's popularly known as the princes in the tower, has been deposed. Richard III, Edward's brother, has been set up in his stead. And this throws all of Margaret's plans into uh, uncertainty and disarray. She'd always been a very, very religious woman, for sure, and continued to be throughout her life. But yeah, her foremost concern was keeping her son safe. And I think that it's at this moment, suddenly, when Richard becomes king, that she kind of throws all caution to the wind. Because at this point, she has been she's been campaigning so hard and come so close to bringing Henry home. But I think that perhaps, and I don't know for sure, but I suspect that Richard III hadn't offered her the same kind of assurances about her son's future that the previous king had. And it's for this reason, it's almost like she's just lost all of her patience at that moment and thinks, okay, well, I can't hang on any longer. I need my son. And she begins plotting against Richard. Let's stop and talk about the princes in the tower. Yeah. Because in recent years, there has been somewhat, I would describe as bonkers, but (laughs) some people ardently believe it, conspiracy theory, that it was not Richard who was responsible for the death of the princes in the tower, but in fact, Margaret Beaufort. How much credence do you give that? Absolutely none. It is bonkers. (laughs) It's totally bonkers. And it's largely come about as a result of popular culture and the depictions of Margaret in television series and books. And, And I just think... You know, I'm all for a conspiracy theory if there's the evidence to back it up. But in Margaret's case, there just isn't. You know, there's not one shred of contemporary evidence that suggests that she was in any way involved in the disappearance of those princes. And I just think somebody would have said something. Mm -hmm. There's nothing. There's nothing to about 100 years after. So make of that what you will. But it's pretty nuts, I think. Talking of contemporary opinions of her, I can say it quite often, especially after the the White Queen was adapted by the BBC. You get this, this idea that she must constantly be compared and contrasted to the other women 
around her, you know, at, yeah. of the age. So Elizabeth Woodville in particular, who was the wife of Edward, but also, you know, Anne Neville, et cetera, et cetera. I don't think it's a competition. I don't think we should put women in competition with each other historically, particularly. <laughs> but what I do think is that if it was a competition, Margaret definitely won in the oh, end, yeah. didn't she? yeah. Oh, absolutely. She was determined to be seen as number one. There's no doubt about that. You know, she was always top of the pecking order from the moment that her son became Henry VII. And to be honest, I think she was pretty much a force to be reckoned with her entire life before then, really. Mm -hmm. She's got lots of really positive traits and really nice things about her. But there's no doubt that you wouldn't want to get on the wrong side of her either, for sure. That's interesting because she's quite often described as a politician. And obviously, politician doesn't mean what it means now. No. But actually, it's not especially common to to see a woman described as that around this period. So that sort of does mark her out in some way. Yeah, absolutely. She really was kind of the first woman of the Tudor dynasty to wield any kind of power and influence. And it's really quite interesting. In some ways, I kind of think of her as like another Anne Boleyn in a different way. So Mm. obviously, Anne Boleyn wields massive influence over Henry VIII in a personal capacity. And so does Margaret Beaufort over Henry VII, but yeah, in a in a different kind of way, because he obviously trusts her and believes that you know she has ability, because otherwise he wouldn't have allowed her to have the amount of power that she came mm. to have. So she obviously, you know, she obviously does have something about her. But yeah, I think that I think that's quite important to point out actually because people talk about Anne Boleyn quite a lot don't necessarily talk about Margaret so much and not necessarily in the most positive of lights all the time but yeah she was extraordinary she was in effect very much making her voice heard in what was a man's world so that's quite impressive at this time yeah agreed stop then and talk about her legacy because obviously a major legacy is is the Tudor dynasty yeah and she lived long enough to arrange her son's funeral and her grandson's coronation Henry VIII's coronation but it's interesting because we mentioned him earlier John Fisher later Saint John Fisher yeah I do wonder what influence she had on her grandson because he killed John Fisher so I do sort of wonder what she would have made of that or what he would have thought what would my grandmother make of this? Because yeah. she would have been furious. Oh, yeah. Yeah, without doubt. She'd have been there saying, like, Henry, what the hell are you doing? Like, <laughs> yeah. what are you doing? I can't honestly imagine that it would have happened if Margaret had been alive. I mean, it's difficult to know, isn't it? Henry VIII was a law unto himself. Yeah. But I always kind of see him as as a real rebel, you know, because as soon as Henry VII dies and then Margaret's a couple of months after, sadly, and it's almost like um, after that point, you know, he starts spending all this money and all the money that his father has accumulated and his grandmother's. Mm. It's almost like, yeah, he's kind of broken free of the reins and he's just doing his own thing. At that point, I don't know, maybe all of his grandmother's influence was definitely forgotten when it came to Fisher. And I mean, yeah, why why would he care what she thought at that point? Because, you know, he was executing his friends, his family. Nobody was safe. Yeah. Still staying on the subject of John Fisher. I live in Cambridge, as we discussed earlier. And 
there is more to Margaret's legacy than the Tudor dynasty. And actually, Cambridge is full of it, including yeah. St. John's College. Yes. Which she gave the money for and then he t- basically took over after she died. But yeah. also, oh, is it Christ's? Is it Christ's? Christ. Is it Christ's? Yeah. yeah, Christ's yeah. College. Also, Margaret had a hand in. There is so much stuff named after her around yeah. here. Where else can people see her legacy in sort of British culture, do you think? Most definitely in Westminster Abbey as well. So I would urge everybody to visit Westminster Abbey and go and see Margaret's tomb um, because it was sculpted by a Florentine called Pietro Trigiano. It's almost certainly sculpted from on a death mask. And um, what's really interesting, I think, is that Torrigiano sculpted her tomb. So she died after Henry VII and Elizabeth of York. But it's almost like after that, they saw that Torrigiano had done quite a good job of her tomb. And so then he's given the even bigger and better commission of doing Henry VII and Elizabeth of York's tomb. So that's the real masterpiece. But yeah, I mean, also, you know, she patronised scholars. She patronised William Caxton. So she was always buying books. So that's that's a really important part. So yeah, Westminster Abbey is, is kind of the best place to see a tangible reminder of her cultural patronage, if you like, because we can see this amazing memorial of her. Okay, now she strikes me as one of those women from history, and there are dozens of them that I find easy to admire, but difficult to like. And I wonder what you make of Margaret in that sense. No, I do know what you mean. I think Margaret's had a bit of a bad press. And I must admit, when I first came to write about her, I wasn't sure what I thought about her. But you mentioned St John's College and St John's College contains many of Margaret's papers, including her account books, which cover most of the latter part of her life. And from this... We can see, you know, how wealthy she was. She had so much cash. She didn't know what to do with it. But um, I saw another side of her because actually we think of her in her portraits as being this woman who's dressed in black. She's on her knees in prayer, looks very, very serious. But the real Margaret was far more colourful than that. We know that she absolutely loved clothes. She loved jewels. She loved gambling. She loved chess. You know, once this comes back to her religiosity. So she once sent a man to deputise for her on a pilgrimage whilst she played a game of cards. So, <laughs> you know. <laughs> okay. That almost completely changed my view there. Of there you go. <laughs> now, your book's called Uncrowned Queen. Yeah. I think Margaret Beaufort does, I think, quite often come up in the question of who is the greatest queen that England or that Britain, depending on what period you're talking about, never had. Uh, Is that what you were trying to drive through with that? that Yeah, I think so. I think so. I'm not trying to say that Margaret was perfect by any means, because, you know, I think as a mother-in-law, she would have probably quite got on your nerves at Mm. times. (laughs) And she could be overbearing, she could be ruthless. So by no means perfect. But I think that There's a lot to be admired about her. And first and foremost, you know, I think her son was the true love of her life and family meant a great deal to her. She was practical. She did have ability um, and she she managed people well and she managed her affairs very well. So definitely, I think that if she had been given the opportunity to be queen, she could have been right up there with her great granddaughter, Elizabeth, too. Mm. Yeah. And she was young. I mean, let's go back to the fact she was 13 when she had her 
she had her son. I mean, she was she was young, you know. She she so young, yeah. But also, even when she was old, she was young. If you know what I mean, she had, in, yeah. in as much as that's how she managed to live right through and see her grandson. I mean, she, yeah, it's, it's incredible. Now, yeah. Westminster Abbey, all eyes have been on that recently, and it I kind have. of fits in with something that you do, which is that you have a podcast called History yeah. Gems, which is about. Well, tell people what it's about. It's about jewellery, um, essentially, but it's about jewels that tell a story. So I think that's the great thing about jewels is that they're like people. They've all got their own stories to tell. So, yeah, it's about, you know, we talk about the crown jewels, Elizabeth I, Fabergé, everything, really, anything that's got a good story to tell. Yeah. I mean, some jewels, obviously, now, quite controversial. Yes, the Koh-i-Noor, yes. Yeah which we didn't yeah. see at coronation. So, yeah, uh, there was a lot of talk about whether that was going to appear in Camilla's crown or not, but but didn't. So, yeah, and that's not the only one that's controversial. I mean, a lot of them have, mm. have got controversies attached to them. But, yeah, that's probably the most famous one. So all good podcast providers. Yes, exactly. Spotify, Apple, wherever. And people can buy Uncrowned Queen. Have you got another book on the go? I have got another book on the go. Can you tell us about it? Well, I'm not allowed to officially say what it's about, but I can say that it will be, it is another Tudor book. It is about a woman and it is going to be out in February. Okay. Well, I might place a bet on that then. In the spirit of Lady Margaret Beaufort, I'll have a gamble on which Tudor woman you're going for. That's that idea. Like, yeah, do <laughs> <laughs> this has been brilliant thank you so much for your time Nicola this has been fascinating oh it's been an absolute pleasure thank you so much for having me it's been really lovely to chat all things Margaret Standard Issue for all women